well. Um, you're really nice at introductions. I like you more and more. <laughs> Chuck and Taryn. And, you know, there's a bit of madness in the room. There's a bit of excitement. And, you know, I just love it. I love the atmosphere tonight. A few people are sort of like making quite a bit of noise during the worship. And I'm just like, oh, so excited. So without any further ado, I've got, I'm going to start with a few stories, which will make sense uh, as I get into them. But uh, one of them is um, just recently, just having dinner with uh, one of the pastors that we planted out some years ago. And I remember at the time, his wife was very clear that they had been called, and he knew that they were called, and he was stepping out in obedience, but there was a reluctancy at the time to go and plant. There was a fear threshold to kind of step over out of the boat. And um, anyway, they, they went in obedience, and um, for the first two years, it was really difficult. I mean, he really wrestled with uh, the challenges of gathering and that first stage of church planting. And we would sit across uh, a dinner at various conferences, and, and he would express his frustrations and all that. But the delight of like, you know, I can't remember how many years on, because I don't want to give away his identity, but... Um, Sitting at the table just recently, um, just seeing the change, the transformation, what God has done in his life and the, the person that he has become and what he stepped into by being obedient to God was just, it's so, I, I mean, I don't know whether I can, I'm allowed to be proud, but, but I am so proud of him and uh, his, his uh, just willingness to actually go, even though it was costly. Another different kind of a story um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, one of our pastors was preaching at, at Trent Vineyard, and uh, as part of his talk, he invited a young guy up who has only been a Christian, I don't think for very long, because he'd finished Alpha, what was it, 18 months ago. And uh, so, but this lad gets up, and he's a welder, and he talks about the fact that in the last three weeks, he had seen six people in his workplace healed. And then he goes on to describe the first time, and how, again, it was like this fearful um, experience of, do I tell the person that I'm supposed to pray for them as they, you know, walk past me with this elbow injury and, and how it was so, like he kept avoiding them and, and not wanting to, because the Lord kept saying, you've got to pray, you've got to pray for him. And eventually he steps over the fear th threshold and he goes for it and the guy experienced symptom relief. And then he describes the second one and, and it was just so exciting. And then I was remembering that, um, uh, whether it was that same morning or the week after, we'd, we'd just been sort of seeing a bit of a wave of physical healing in the church. And I remember uh, we finished the service, I think it wasn't last, the week before last, and I was wandering out the back, and I come across this young girl. They'd been in our church for about three years now, but when they first came, she and her husband, um, the size of the church sort of put them off. They, they just felt it was too big. They weren't going to stay the first time I met them, and this was about two or three years ago. And they'd come from more of a sort of conservative background. They weren't used to the things of, things of the Spirit. But I, I kind of bumped into her at the back of church a couple of Sundays ago, and tears streaming in her face because she had prayed for somebody and they'd been healed. And that had never happened to her before, and she was so excited. And then finally, before I help you understand why I'm telling these stories, um, our, uh, Nigel Briggs, has, we've worked with him for over 20 years, and he was our worship pastor. Really happy to stand at the front, play a guitar, and lead a band. But he didn't really embrace leadership in other ways. But he has stepped, given the worship uh, side away of things. He doesn't play the guitar anymore. He doesn't lead worship um, other than small settings. But what he does is he manages big projects, building projects for us, and, and oversees a number of staff and areas of ministry really effectively. But he doesn't usually do much from the front. 
But on this particular uh, evening, we were standing together and we were doing ministry together, which is not typical of, of Nigel. But then all of a sudden, he comes out with this word. He names the guy. Uh, obviously, he's got the gender. So it's a, a male name. We know the gender of the person. And then he's like, you're about to walk out of the building. There's about 500 people in the room. He goes, you're about to walk out of the building. You are uh, considering taking your life. And God says, turn around and come back and get prayer. And, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's quite a big word and a kind of a risky word. And the man was there. You know, Nigel knew nothing about this guy, and this guy is there, and he comes back. And that word saved this man's life. And, you know, as we think about some of these things, the church planter, the, the, the young man in the, the welder, you know, healing people, then the young girl experiencing healing for the first time, and then Nigel's word, there's something going on supernatural. There's something about them stepping into an identity uh, in the supernatural realm, who they really are. They're becoming what they're meant to be. And, you know, somebody needed encouraging or somebody needed healing, and they were willing to do it. In the case of Nigel, I know that he's shy. He wouldn't want to make a fool of himself. And so why? Why would he do such a thing? Why would people step into obedience even though they know there's a cost? And because whether or not people fully understand it, whether or not you fully understand it, you are being called to represent God's nature. You are actually not citizens of this world. You are citizens of heaven. And uh, let me just tell you a few more examples of people that I've known over time. I have a friend who is ridiculously generous. I mean, he, uh, if he meets somebody in need, he doesn't just give them just some clothes. He wants to buy them the most, you know, the newest, latest, you know. I'm sure they'll go off and sell it. But, you know, like the latest Levi's or something. It's ridiculous, uh, the extravagance. But if you ask him why, he's like, because I don't care about money. I don't care about the things of this world. I just want to give it away. I want to bless people. And I recently finished, um, or have we finished it yet? We've been listening to it on audio, haven't we? Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's, an, it's a radical book. She talks about um, radically ordinary hospitality in a post-Christian world. And um, it's the freedom with resources. It's the fact that she and her husband and their family have embraced a simple lifestyle in order to open up their home and invite people in, strangers in. Most nights of the week, they've got someone sleeping on the sofa who they maybe don't even know, and they're laying out a, a sheet and a blanket. And she says people think it's dangerous, but they're bringing their kids up in an environment of radical hospitality. And I think, why would they do it? They've fostered people over the years. And then, I don't know if you've ever met Simon Gillibo. Have I got the surname pronounced right yet? Simon Gillibo. Anyway, from time to time, we've, he's come to preach at our church, and he's a relative of someone in our church. But he, for many years, lived in Burundi, risking his life so that people who are far from God would, would know Jesus. And he does it because people matter to God. And, you know... Um, there was one story that he tells uh, where there's bullets ricocheting everywhere. It's like uh, at the worst times in Burundi, war-torn nation, and, uh, and he has to jump into a ditch to save, you know, so he doesn't get hit by a, by a bullet. And he falls into the ditch on top of a woman. And there, in that place, he leads her to Jesus. And it's just so radical. It's just crazy. And, you know, I know that some of you here have made sacrifices, some of you big sacrifices, you know, because you're choosing to follow Jesus and you're choosing something not because it's comfortable. It's not ordinary. It's something you're stepping into, the, uh, the supernatural way of obedience, of following Jesus, whatever the cost. 
And I could tell you story after story of people who have given up uh, great jobs, earning lots of money, uh, all kinds of professions. People who are in some of the, these professions stayed, you know, working in politics or in business. They're entrepreneurs. But they're doing it with an attitude that I, their identity is not in, in that particular job, but because God has called them there to make a difference in that situation, to be a blessing. And they're living as visitors on this earth with a firm footing on the things of heaven. You see, the world will say, work hard, earn a living, save up, have a leisure time. You know, you deserve a break. Um, all these things, meet your wants and your needs. And you've got to think about your family and your close uh, people. And, you know, they don't want you to do really anything but really take care of yourself. Have a, have a life that is, that is envied by other people. And, uh, and yet, many of us insist on living differently. Why would we do such a thing? And it's because we've discovered... We've discovered a great secret. We've discovered that there is just something so wonderful about following Jesus. And I want to talk about this secret of being citizens of heaven, that really we don't belong here. This isn't our real home. This isn't the final destination. We're only here for a short time. And so I want to look at what it means to be citizens of heaven, how we get that citizenship, how we overcome the obstacles of living this citizenship out living the kind of lives that I've been describing. And my longing for us, for all of us, wherever you are, you're at in, in your kind of, you know, some of you may even be young in the faith here. You know, you found yourself at a, a conference and it's like crazy what's going on, uh, but you're loving it. You know, why am I here? What's my life about? Others of you, you've been serving the Lord faithfully for years. Uh, I met a couple in the afternoon who are just, they, they're, they're in their, I know you're over 50, but, you know, they packed up and they moved to set up a new church plant to go with 18 others to set up a new church. And it's just fantastic. You know, it's never too late. And so how do we get this citizenship? Now, we need to start with the Bible. And, um, you know, it's really interesting. You know, we're going right back to the beginning to understand what God's plan for us was at the beginning. We were born automatically, in a sense, into heavenly citizenship. You know, in the Garden of Eden, it's like we were given a passport, uh, a heavenly passport. And in Genesis 1, it tells us that God created the earth, the waters, the skies, all the living things. And we get to verse 26, and it says, you know, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on earth. And when God made them, he looked on them and says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, govern it, reign. And then we come to Genesis chapter 2, and we see a kind of magnified version of God creating uh, mankind. Then the Lord God, in verse 7, formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And it goes on to say, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So it was idyllic. They were, God made man and woman in his image. And they were made to rule and to be a blessing. And this is, this is our story. This is our beginnings. To be like God, to rule, to rule over creation, to extend the garden, and to be fruitful. And to do it like God would do it. Carrying out um, his nature into the way we did things. And it was beautiful. The garden was our home. That's where we belonged. That's where we knew who we were. And that's where we had purpose. But then tragedy strikes. And the fall comes. 
And Genesis 3 opens up this tragic uh, situation where the serpent, the shrewdest of all the wild animals, he comes to Eve as Satan and he lies to Eve. God is selling you short. You know, you, don't, you mustn't trust him. You know, and Satan offers her what in fact she already has. If you do as I tell you, you will be like God. She was already like God. We were made in his image. And yet she believes this lie. And she and Adam disobey God. And at that moment, their eyes are open and they look at each other and they suddenly feel ashamed and they cover themselves up. And then they hide from the Lord. They hide amongst the trees. And they not only separated themselves from God, but from each other. Suddenly their perception of God is damaged. Their trust in him and in each other, they start to blame each other and they separate themselves from God and they distrust God. They lost their identity. Sin has entered in. They not only desired it, but they kind of took it into themselves. And the fabric of their being is now damaged and sinful. And they've lost purely reflecting the image of God. And their very being is affected. And they lose their purpose. And instead of ruling over Satan, they, instead of subduing the serpent, uh, they give him rulership. They do what he says. And by doing what they said, they've actually given him authority in their lives, which is not his. It was not given to him ever. So God explains the consequences of what they'd done. Life was now going to be difficult. We weren't going to live um, in this beautiful, fruitful garden. You know, there, were the, there was an outcome to our actions. And so God puts them out of the garden, uh, not to abandon them, because he never abandons them, but to put them in a place where they're not going to experience this forever. That this is going to be a temporary situation. He is going to save us because he has a plan to save us from the beginning. He never was going to abandon them. That's a lie that people bought into. And uh, so Satan had played a cruel cheat. He deceived them. They lost their true identity. They believed him. They lost their sense of rulership. And they believed empty promises. And in a sense, he hid their passports, their true citizenship, where they truly belonged, whose they belonged to. And, uh, and they, they became like part of this world and the cruelty of this world. But God in his mercy and his wonderfulness had a plan from the beginning. And immediately he says, you know, Eve from your offspring. You know, there's the promise of Jesus, the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. And the Bible tells us the story of how God set uh, about rescuing us and restoring us back to our true identity and our true purpose. And so in the scriptures we see unfolding, his love is relentless. Uh, it's just unending. And he makes it possible for us to come home. And Jesus, who is God, comes to earth in the human form, and he shows us how we can live, how we can live this true citizenship out, what our purpose is. And he voluntarily hangs on the cross and sets us free, forgives us, and restores us, saves us, so that, and we don't have to feel separated anymore. We don't have to believe the lies. And in his resurrection, he opens the door for our very being to be made new. And he comes to live in us by his spirit, and we breathe him in. We breathe him in, and we receive new life, and it's free, and our identity is restored. Christ is in us. We're in him. He's in us. Christ who overcame everything. Christ, who is now seated on the throne, interceding on our behalf. 
you know, and we're in him, and it's a mystery, and it's incredible, and we can't get to the bottom of it, we can't get to the end of it, it's just unfathomable. But it's overwhelmingly huge, and our purpose is restored. Now, the Apostle Peter, who I just so love that the opening of this conference, Taryn speaks about Peter, and my gosh, don't we see change in that man? I mean, just from the beginning and then the end, even in his dying days, it's just amazing what happens to Peter. But he understands this secret about this citizenship, and it's fascinating how he writes in 1 Peter 1, the opening of this chapter, he talks about us being strangers. Now, he doesn't mean strangers to God. He means strangers to this world. This is not our home. This is not where we really belong. And so he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, from verse 9. He says, but you are not like that, for you are chosen people. You are royal priests. You're a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you've received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, which they will, those days are coming, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And then we have Paul, you know, the Apostle Paul, who, who, who the risen Christ came to and visited him. A man who used to hate Christians, persecuted them. But he shares the same secret as Peter. And as he speaks to the Philippian church, he writes this in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, for I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct show that they really are enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about the things about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. So he's saying that there are some of you who don't know Jesus yet. Okay, there's going to be some of us that we're going to who just don't know how to live anything that, that outside of this worldly way and to live for the pleasures of this world. They're citizens of this world, and they say, so they live like by those rules and that value system. But then he says with tears in our eyes to us, the body of Christ, he says, you know, we don't have to give ourselves over to those appetites and those shameful desires and think only of this life. We are citizens of heaven. Now, Billy Graham, the great evangelist, you know, died a couple of years ago, and he would say this, my home is in heaven. I'm just passing through this world. The Bible says that as long as we are here on earth, we are strangers in a foreign land. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's really important to gain this perspective. We are called to live dangerous lives, brave, courageous lives. These are urgent days you know, urgent days to step up and do radical things for Jesus. But unless we really understand where our true home is, where our true identity, the roots and the foundations, unless they're really in Christ and rooted in that, you know, we are going to be wobbled by the things of this world. 
Now, uh, there's a great picture I came across, and uh, I hope because it, yes, you can see like, some of you will see a picture of a man's face. Then if you look into it, there's a little boy painting a picture. And they're two there, they're, they're two realities. And you know, it's a bit like that. You know, we're living in this world. We need to reach the people of this world. We need to make a difference. We need to understand the culture. We need to be able to come alongside our friends who don't know Jesus, understand where they're coming from, understand the, the situations, the specifics, the difficulties, the challenges, the culture. We need to be, in a sense, rooted with, with you know, we have to be in this world to be relevant. At the same time, we have to know who we really are, where we really belong. And there's these two realities, and we've got to realize that we are, you know, we are strangers but yet we've got to be great friends. You know, we've got to love our neighbors, but we're not really citizens of this Scotland, of England, of UK. I mean, we are not really. This isn't really our home. So this helps us illustrate the two realities. What does this citizenship mean? You know, let's, I just want to look at the word, um, what it means in the dictionary a citizen is a person who legally belongs to a country and has the rights and protection of that country. So if you see it in a kingdom sense, you know, through Jesus and only through Jesus, we enter the legalities of it all. You know, my, my friend, um, she married a Turkish guy and he needed to get his UK citizenship. And it was arduous. I mean, he had to prove that his marriage was for real, that he could work in this country, that, you know, he had to pass all sorts of uh, exams and questions, things that I wouldn't have a clue. But he had to learn it all and prove that he was authentically uh, going to be able to be a citizen of this, you know, of the UK and Ireland. Um, but uh, what happens is once you become a citizen of a particular country or nation, over time you begin to adopt the culture and the practices and you imbibe it into your system. And sometimes it takes generations. And you know, the Bible tells us that since the fall, every human being has been born into the culture of this world, into Satan's rule. And so consequently, we grow up adopting all things into, into this, this culture of the, the world in which we live, the values that Satan has instigated. And Satan's kingdom enslaves its citizens. You know, I, I, I grew up in a Christian family. I loved Jesus, but in my teenage years, I went to boarding school, and it wasn't a particularly Christian culture. And, uh, and I just began to question whether I could live the Christian life. I didn't lose my faith in God, but I had made all sorts of compromises. By the time I went to, um, to college, to, to poly, it was, um, I was training as a dancer, and um, I, there was a great emphasis uh, of being thin in those days. It's not Nowadays, it's very different. It's much more about being healthy. But in those days, it's like if we were a little bit overweight, you know, we, it was drawn to the attention of, of our tutors. And I began to see, you know, how my friends, like some of them would throw up their food. And I thought, oh, that's an easy way to do it. I'll throw up my food. And pretty soon I was hooked. And I was obsessed, obsessed with the way that I looked. I quickly became imprisoned. I was miserable. And of course, you know, I didn't have the energy to dance well because I wasn't eating properly. And I was utterly consumed with, with, uh, with my weight. And it just gripped me. And I don't know how it came upon me so quickly, but it was like an addiction. And I battled with it for years. And praise God, I was uh, set free when, you know, I came into the things of the Spirit. But, you know, many of us find, you know, that the ways of the enemy are so slippery, slimy, deceptive, and, and it starts so easy, and then pretty soon it grips you and it enslaves you. You know, some of us have, a, have what seems like a legitimate need 
you know, a need for companionship. Many, you know, you might be single and you think, I would love to be married. And, you know, out there in the world, I, there are so many people who would marry me. But I, I'm, I'm choosing Jesus and I'm choosing to find a Christian uh, a spouse, a Christian person to do life with. But there's limited choice. And the temptation to go outside and have a non-Christian uh, boyfriend and partner and then all the kind of temptations that go with that and the challenges and the difficulty. A legitimate need... And then it's like, you know, you get drawn into. And I've seen um, particularly girls in our church who've just been drawn away from the Lord because of their need to have a partner and not finding that person in the church and not being able or willing to hold out for what God has for them. And I can't judge them, but I'm just so sad when that happens. You may have a, you know, even, you know, whether it's singleness or even married, you may have a, a level of frustration. You may, may find that, you know, pornography these days is so easily accessible. And there are many Christian leaders who get caught up in pornography because it's so easy to be unaccountable. And it's then so easy to become addicted and hooked and imprisoned. And it's miserable and it affects so much. And so there are so many desires that, that start out as godly needs and wants that turn into something really sinister that grips us and creates an addiction. And it takes us away from why we're here what being a citizen of heaven is about and what our purpose and calling is here. And we start to believe Satan's lies and we find ourselves blindly following the rule of this world. And we remain captives. And it takes us away from our true identity. So my longing is that we would, you know, ponder on this and recognize that we're not here for long. And we are rooted in something otherworldly that is absolutely wonderful. I can personally testify that in my journey, it hasn't so much been a journey of um, fighting off sin and uh, wrestling with blame. I'm not saying that I don't suffer from like, uh, you know, I sometimes judge myself harshly, but, but along the way, there have been really serious issues in my life that it's as I've given myself to following Jesus, stepping into obedience, that the other things have just sort of melted away. It wasn't that I paid loads of attention to recovering from an eating disorder, but it was making that decision. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to pursue Jesus. He's going to be the passion of my life. And the more I gave myself to Jesus, the more I fell in love with Jesus, the more the other things became less important. And so it's like, it's the more you, you, you seek out, what is it you have for me, Lord? What's my assignment? What do you want me to do? Even if it means giving things up, the things that were really hooked me before don't hook me in the same way, you know? And so, you know, it's like it's embracing who you are, what you're called to be, and sowing to the Spirit, listening to God's voice on a daily basis. It's so fulfilling. It's such an adventure. The Bible says that when we say yes to Jesus, we're born again, and we're born into the kingdom of heaven. We're no longer citizens of this world. We have a restored identity, a new home, a new culture to imbibe. It's challenging, but it's amazing. It means that we can love where there's hatred. You know, um, when you step into leadership, John was talking about volunteering to be ugly. And, you know, there are so many opportunities to be misunderstood. You know, you, your intentions, your, you may be making a, the best decision for the whole of the church, but because of that decision, somebody, it doesn't, it doesn't work for them. You know, and you've tried to do the right thing, but somebody's hurt whether deliberately or whether by just overlooking a situation, we, we hurt people, not intentionally. 
And so people are upset with us. And sometimes they become bitter and they perceive us in the wrong way. And it's really painful as a leader. You know, it's hurtful. But, you know, we don't have to um, give back what we're receiving. We can be generous because we have an identity that is bigger, you know, that we can, we can do what Jesus did when he said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And so often people don't understand what they're doing. They under, don't understand how something might be hurting you. But we, can, we need to be able to rise above it. Say, Lord, I don't understand. You see it. My job is to love my brother and sister. My brother and my sister are never my enemy. Whatever they do to me, they are not my enemy. And I'm going to still root for them because the enemy is targeting them in this situation and maybe causing them to develop a bitter root or something. My job is to forgive and to love unconditionally, not to judge, and just to you know, keep doing the right, making the right decisions before God. I stand, you know, we stand before an audience of one, doing the best we can. We're allowed to make mistakes. We're allowed to make mistakes as leaders. You know, we can't judge ourselves too harshly. Um, but we can be generous with our attitudes because our identity is not rooted in the things of this earth. We're pleasing our Father. And we can demonstrate God's nature. You know, I was, um, I was discussing this uh, kind of talk with my son, Jordan, who is passionate about Jesus. He's all out uh, in, a, in a youthful way. And we were talking about this in the kitchen. And, and he said, Mom, this is what it's like. This is what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And I went like, that is so good. I'm going to film you. Right? So, so you're going to see a little clip. It's two minutes long. Let me indulge me as I, as I show off my son. <laughs> Hello and welcome. Thanks for coming. There must be hundreds of you. Okay. The Bible says that we are citizens of heaven. So let's just pretend for one minute that's actually who we are. We're up in heaven. We're all hanging out, gathered together. Jesus walks in. Guys, hi. Thanks for being here. Uh, me and God have had this kind of crazy idea, but we think it's a good one. Uh, we've hired about a thousand bodies. You're all going to have one. Um, some are going to be a little bit ugly, um, others might have eczema, uh, sickness, different things, uh, problems and ailments. Uh, but don't worry about it, because we're literally talking 80 to 100 years, some of you even less. Um, so, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on a mission together. I'm going to be with you, my Holy Spirit's going to be with you all the time. We're on a mission together to expand the Kingdom of God, to be a blessing. Some of you are going to be uh, in business, others of you are going to be doctors, you're going to pray while you're giving medicine, others of you are going to just have the gift of hospitality. Your job is to be a blessing and help expand the kingdom of God. We're on this mission together and I'm with you all the time. The main thing to remember is that I'm going to be with you, okay? Read the word, pray, stay in communication with me because the enemy is going to be coming at you hard all the time. He's going to be shooting fiery darts at you, telling you that you're not worthwhile, telling you you've got no friends, telling you you're not good enough, telling you that I'm distant, but I'm not distant, I'm close. So persevere and let's do this thing together. So are you guys ready for it? I know I'm a little bit impulsive up here in heaven, but anyway, three, two, one, boom. And you're born as a baby and you can communicate with the Lord. Remember who you are. Amen. see why I had to capture it. And uh, so, you know, if you think of your lives that way, it's a short time. There's an urgency to what we're doing. 
And we can only live this by faith, folks, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We, can, we, can, we have to do this by encouraging each other, meeting together, you know, reading the Word together, being filled again and again because we leak. We leak the Holy Spirit. You know, we're filled, and then we leak, and we have to come back and be filled again because we can only do this in the Spirit. And, you know... Um, we will find ourselves in situations where we are so challenged, but also in amazing situations. I, um, I was coming back from, in fact, I just received an email about uh, during this week from a girl that I met on an airplane. And uh, I had had uh, an, an amazing encounter with the Holy Spirit. I was in Chicago, and it was during last year. And uh, honestly, for six months, I was just, I was so just, you know, overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. And, um, but, I just left this conference, and I get onto the plane, and I sit next to this girl, and, um, and I knew that I had a whole bunch of stuff that I had to tell her, that a message from God. And so it, I, I just said, look, you know, I sometimes hear from the Lord, can I just tell you this stuff? And she agreed, and I poured out all this stuff about her life, what she was doing, and uh, it turns out that she was a believer, which was amazing, because often, you know, they're not believers, and, and I love that, because I love ministering to people who don't know Jesus. But anyway... Um, apparently what I said was, was really profound. And um, she, she left from there and ended up, I had a staff member, and then, who was it? Um, oh, Kate, Kate Newman. You're, you've probably gone home. She's probably not here, but she was here today. And Kate Newman, these two different parts of the country, write to me to say that apparently a friend of theirs knew this girl, Rachel, and that you know, I'd met her and it had really blessed her. But she, she, we, So we've written to each other a few times, and so she wrote to me last week, and um, as a result of this word, she had ended up really staying in the job that she was in, which involves looking after kids who are about to be fostered or being adopted. And it's a really hard job. And uh, she ended up with this little boy who ran away, and she broke all the rules and ran after him to find him. And she did like the lost sheep, and, the, and she was in big trouble, but she was like absolutely convinced that she had to do it, and um, she was in trouble with her kind of overseers. But uh, somebody said to her, you know, um, the boy was then placed with a family, and he wrote to, the, to her and said, thank you so much for, for running after me. Thank you so much. I, I love where, where I've been placed. And, um, you know, and, and basically, if she hadn't run after him and found him, he would never have, you know, the whole way the thing unfolded was so amazing. But she was writing to say, thank you for that word, because you know, the, the impact that she's had on the people that she's worked with and since staying in the job has just been amazing. But, you know, we, we have these encounters. On another occasion, I was picking up a parcel from my neighbor and uh, two doors down. So I, don't, I, I didn't know Sharon well at the time. And, and I'm picking up this parcel and I get back home and then I'm sitting down and I feel the Lord say, you know, acid reflex condition. And I'm like, what's that acid reflex? What is it? You know, how does it work? And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's going to be this neighbor. So, oh, how did I got to go around, knock on the door and say it? So anyway, I went around. I said, look, it's going to sound really odd, but, you know, sometimes God gives me words, and I've got this condition, you know, acid reflex. Does that make any sense? Yes, I suffer from it. So I said, can I lay hands on you and pray for you? So she let me in, and I quickly prayed in a very naturally supernatural way, nothing hype, nothing too crazy, and, uh, and I left her and didn't hear anything for a few weeks. And then her husband comes around with a big case of, homegrown tomatoes so obviously something's going on and um and about three months later and all like you know there was just occasionally a little wave as we passed by nothing else didn't hear anything more 
John and Eleanor Mumford are staying with us, and I'm telling them, we're talking about different encounters we've had with people, and I said, oh, and you know, I went round to pray for the neighbour, and all that. I don't know what happened. And at that moment, the doorbell rings, and my neighbour, Sharon, just sort of walked straight into the house, didn't she? She walked and she said, oh, it's amazing, I've just been on an all-inclusive holiday, I've eaten everything I want to eat, I'm completely better, no symptoms, it's been three months, you've got to do what you do to other people. And I said, it's Jesus. I mean, it was so good, I said, it's Jesus, but it was just the timing of the conversation and then her walking in was amazing and then we'd have to have different little conversations and encounters. But it's just so wonderful to be uh, on this earth and to find yourself a change agent, a agent. You know, you walk into situations and there's a little fizz and a buzz and a, something happens that's kingdom and you start to operate in, a, in the supernatural realm and you hear the Lord and you have dreams and, and, and fresh ideas. And, you know, some of you, you're so good. I know that over Easter you were going out on Blessing the Community Projects and, and reaching out to hundreds of people just, just with a simple, you know, giveaway of an Easter egg and maybe a conversation, maybe a prayer here and there. But, you know, you cannot underestimate the impact of those tiny little encounters. And, you know, so often I found in the early days when we were planting, I would tell everybody about what we were doing. And, uh, and not everybody then came by any means to what we were doing. But God would send other people. And then sometimes people would say, someone spoke to me three years ago, or someone stopped me in the street, or somebody did delivered uh, strawberries to my house, or somebody did this, and I've now come. And I mean, time and again, you know, a little conversation that I'd have in a nail salon, and then five years later, she's there in the church, and, and she's been with us for like a few months, and like, yes, you did my nails, and I'm, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And I'm like, we had a great conversation. Like, you can talk to me. I'm not some unreachable person. But it's just amazing to find these little conversations that you think have gone nowhere, have sown a seed, and then you leave it up to the Lord. And then there's times when you can really walk with somebody through the whole journey and see them come to faith, and it's amazing. But just knowing that, you know, just give it away, and who cares what people think of us? We don't need to fight for our reputation. And, you know, we'll fail and we'll make mistakes and we'll learn along the way. And we have to think of ourselves like um, gold medal winners. You know, we're all, in, in God's sight, we are just wonderful, wonderful. You know, we are, the, we are just the apple of his eye. Is that how you say it? The, 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 anyway, because I'm a bit chilly and I, don't, I get these things mixed up. But anyway, uh, like, you know, if you watch someone like Mo Farah, is that the way you pronounce his surname? Anyway, he's running. I mean, he's amazing. But, you know, in the practice and the practice and the practice. No doubt he hasn't come in on time or he's tripped up, but he doesn't go, oh, that's it. I'm a failure. I'll give up. He goes, right, get up, go again. You know, but so easily we have a failure, an embarrassing situation. Mark Marks, who you probably all know about, you know, absolutely phenomenal on the streets healing ministry. He came to our church and I was so revved up. I mean, all the stories that he told in our church. And we left that Sunday morning, and I was like, yes, I've got to stop and ask the miracle question. So we happen to need to buy something at B&Q. John goes in to buy at B&Q, and I'm hovering, looking for people, right? <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on, my, on my own, you know, and, uh, and, I'm, and I come across this couple, and I go up to them and I say, if you could ask for a miracle, what would it be? And they immediately said, we want, um, you know, financial security for our children. We want health and well-being or something like that. So I said, let me pray for you, trusting that God's going to just sort of give me a word of knowledge or something. So I start praying, and I'm just praying in a really normal way, and they just walk away. They just walk away. Where's my story gone? Like, it's gone all wrong. How embarrassing. But I did end up praying for a couple that was, that was okay. But honestly, there are so many embarrassing situations, so many embarrassing situations, but we just have to pick ourselves up. 
You know, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be believed in. Like, and to tell the, the Holy Ghost stories that go well, but also the ones that go wrong. And just laugh and laugh, and then get out and do it again. But, you know, to be believed in is amazing. My father was uh, just, he, he believed that we could do anything. Uh, he had four little girls, and we were on the mission field. We were poor as poor. And um, we dressed as paupers from the jungle box. I didn't realize that it was called the jumble sale box because in those days they didn't have many charity shops. But what they had is that churches, people would bring all their secondhand clothes and then they'd be all on a table and you'd rumble through, you know, go through them and find the odd item and buy it for, you know, very little money. So some kind person in, the, in England would find clothes for us as girls and they'd send out a trunk full of, of jumble sale clothes. And we thought it was the jungle box, you see. So in the jungle box we would find clothes and they might be two sizes too big. The only thing we had that was decent or started out decent would be uh, underwear from Marks and Spencers, which my mother would buy big amounts of when she came to England. And so um, the four of us, it would start with Charlotte would get the knickers when they were new. So she had a big pair of knickers that tight and everything. Then I would wear them next and then Becky next. And then by the time it got to Tasha, they, they were droopy drawers and they were dragging on the floor. And so she was called droopy drawers. And, um, and anyway, we would sit at the table and we'd be eating, you know, you'd have one chicken and we'd always have guests. So it was like among eight people, one little chicken. So, you know, a wing was great. And, um, and so we'd be eating our dinner and dad would say, now girls, manners, manners maketh man. And, you know, insist that we ate properly and drank our cup of tea. Because one day you might have tea with the queen. You see, that was to him the zenith, or, you know, to have tea with the queen or meet the queen or something like that. Well, do you know, it's ridiculously funny because when I came to boarding school, the queen mother was patron of our boarding school. And I ended up dancing solo for the queen mother. And my sisters and I met her. Then... Um, uh, I ended up, when I was in hospital with Zach, Princess Diana comes and sits on my bed and talks about, you know, how cold the jelly is when you have the ultrasound. And uh, anyway, one of my sisters, her husband's a lord, and they are friends with members of the royal family. I'm not allowed to recount conversations, but I can brag about it. And uh, although, it, honestly, it means nothing. But, you know, for my father, and then one of my sisters has a bit of a fling with a foreign prince. But, you know, that wasn't what my father was thinking about. And we don't mention that too much. But it's, it's so funny to think, way back then, sitting around the table, little, little girls who knew nothing of, of, of English culture or the royal family or anything. And my father's like, you might have tea with the queen. And, you know, all these, like, funny things that... that when you're believed in, anything is possible. And you know, when our Father believes in us, our Heavenly Father, when we think of ourselves as sons and daughters of citizens of heaven, you know, it changes everything. And I, I've told this story uh, at some other settings, but I met this guy, Clay, when I was in Chicago, and um, he's a black African-American. And he started, he tells a story of when he starts dating his um, American girlfriend, and uh, they... They, it's getting serious, and she says, we, I need to introduce you to my parents. But my parents are really racist. And uh, he's like, really? You know, really? Not, surely not that bad. Anyway, she calls them, and he can hear the conversation, and they are just screaming down the phone, expletives. It's just so aggressive. They are, it's just unbelievable how racist they are. And she's so embarrassed and so upset. And, and in the moment, he like, says, I'm so hurt, but he said, I am, I'm, not, I'm going to be bigger than this. And he decides in that moment, I'm going to, they are the parents of my 
girlfriend, and I love her, and I want to marry her one day. So I'm going to choose to honor them and to love them and, and respect them. And over the years, he just is so honoring of them and so polite and so dignified in the way that he says, I am not a citizen of this world. I know who I am. I'm going to function in that way. I'm a son of the king. And, and so he just loves them. And, and the years go by, and he said just recently, the matriarch of the family, the grandmother, dies. And, the, and his wife's father asks him to preside over the funeral. And the place is packed out. There's not another black face in the congregation. And their friends and neighbors and relatives, who are all from a deeply racist sort of South, I think, community, and he's there presiding, kind of leadership over this really emotional uh, situation. And, and he holds himself with great dignity. And the family, the close family, absolutely love it because they just, they've grown to love him and, and see past their prejudices, which is so ridiculous. Um, but it's like, this is what it means. It's like we can go into situations that we don't have to pick up on what other people think of us. We can be dignified in our responses. And, you know, uh, we can do things that are just unexpected. I was, there was a guy in our church who was, hadn't even come to faith yet, and he's starting to understand what it means to be rooted in heavenly things and not the things of this earth. And uh, John's talking about giving, and um, we always seem to be talking about giving. And, uh, and this guy's like, you know, I don't know if I can give. I'm, I don't even know if I believe in God yet, but a figure comes. John says, just pray and ask God to give you a, a, an amount of money. And he, this money amount comes into his head, and he's like, I can't give that much. If I'm going to do this, I'll have to, you know, have to settle a business deal that, you know, that, that's not going to happen. But he says, well, Lord, if this is really you, I think he talked to you first, didn't he? And you said, just pray about it. And he says, you know, if this is you, uh, then you've got to help me settle this deal, and then I'll give the money. And the day before the Sunday that we were all bringing our gifts, uh, the deal was settled, and he, like, he gave the money. And it's like, He's almost stepping into an identity of not operating from the, you know, a, a security in this world before he'd even actually agreed to make Jesus his Lord. But learning the culture, you know, we imbibe the culture as we hang out with others. Um, my sons inherited some money, and they really prayed about what they should do, how they should invest it, and they felt the Lord prophetically tell them that they would, you know, buy a house and do it up, and that would be the best way to invest the money. And they, they, they found this street with some really pretty houses, but all, like, most of them needed doing up. But on the end was a massive house that was utterly derelict. And it was so bad. You could, if you stand on the bottom floor and looked up three stories, you'd see, like, uh, the sky. And so there's birds and pigeons, and it just, it was horrendous. There'd been squatters in there and owned by the council. And they put in a bid, and miraculously they got it. And they, they do it up. I don't know how they knew what to do, because uh, they were never showed any signs of anything practical as they grew up with us. But they feel the Lord's told them, and somehow people come on board to help them. And they do this house up, and it's got four different flats in it. And, um, and anyway, the whole street has an up, you know, like all the house, houses rise in price. Where the rest of the market is going down, these houses are all rising. It's like, you know, when the kingdom comes, when we move into the neighborhood, everybody benefits. And it's not about, sometimes it's not about people becoming Christians. They just get to the experience the blessing of your presence on that street, in that neighborhood, doing the things of the kingdom in ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. I think we... I need, I need to rush through. Let me just see where I can go. So um, let me just read Romans 8, because this is an amazing reminder again of this, of this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so this is an identity that we need to accept and the Holy Spirit helps us nurture it. And Peter says this, we're a chosen people, a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. So because of that, that's how we combat the, the desires that can so easily consume and enslave us because we're made new and we're restored to a new identity. We're restored to personal intimacy with our Father, citizens of heaven. So folks, we can't do this alone. We can't do this without God's help. I've rushed through, I've rushed through the end because we just need to do ministry and um, yeah, God's in the house. And I, you know, the first, I just felt the Lord, I didn't know whether I did it before or after, but I just think that first of all, we need to minister healing. I think there are many of you with physical conditions and I just want to ask um, you to just, let's just ask the Lord to give us some words of knowledge and I want you to shout them out loud and clear. We're going to gather in some words of knowledge and then I want to do, first of all, if you have one of those conditions, you recognize it as yourself or, you know, if you really feel there's somebody that is a really close loved one to you and you just have to stand on their behalf, then that's fine too. Um, but we're going to have the words of knowledge, then I want you to stand, and then those around us, or if you feel compelled to pray for somebody, we're going to gather around, we're going to pray, we're going to just quickly pray, Holy Spirit, we welcome you, you know, we speak with authority, healing into the situation, speak to the condition, you know, you might want to ask a few facts around it, but don't spend too long, we're going to just minister healing to one another, and then we're going to move on to some other things, but so, Lord, we just welcome you, we know that you're here, and we just ask that you would uh, open our mind's eyes, our hearing, our, our imagination, and give us words of knowledge. And so as they come, just speak them out. 